Welcome to Resistance Radio. I am John Gain, and uh, I'm your host. Look, I am happy to be here. Um, I have to talk about a subject I've, you know, I've referenced it, I've mentioned it, um, even recently with a lot of the, the conversations about the Pope, I've talked about it, uh, his, the Pope Apology Tour. Um, but I realized I haven't done a show to really explain what the doctrine of Christian discovery, or otherwise known as the doctrine of discovery, what it really is. And, you know, where it comes from, uh, what is its legacy, and, 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 you know, what it means to Native people, and not just Native people, Native people in particular, but, but many people as a result of it. So, first, a couple of things. You know, I, I've already addressed a lot of this, the Pope Apology Tour, and one of the things that, that came up at the very end of that was he had been asked, and I don't know if it was in... Um, you know, like, like a private interview afterwards. It wasn't in a public setting, but he was asked about whether he was prepared to repudiate or rescind the doctrine of Christian discovery or the doctrine of discovery. And he apparently wasn't prepped very well because he didn't even know what it was. I mean, he, he expressed that he wasn't aware of what it was, which is incredibly problematic from, you know, from a Native standpoint, because we know there have been people making overtures, not just to this Pope, but to this Pope, and many Popes before him, about the issues surrounding the doctrine of discovery. So let me, let me explain what the doctrine of discovery or the doctrine of Christian discovery is. And look, the reason I throw the word Christian in there is, well, I'll tell you what. <laughs> let me just start. This is, first off, what Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in 2005, this is what she cited as um, essentially, again, footnote number one in her ruling to throw out an Oneida case. She said, under the doctrine of discovery, fee title to the lands occupied by Indians when the colonists arrived became vested in the sovereign. First, the discovering nations of Europe, and later, the original states, and then the United States. So... This is what she cites. And now, I don't know if this is her original quote or her original interpretation of the, um, of the Doctrine of Discovery. You know, she cites in that footnote um, the Doctrine of Discovery being, being cited in, in, in the, some of the previous arguments relating to the Oneidas trying to reclaim lost land. But regardless, this is, this is her writing that is attached as footnote number one in her opinion um, on this city of Sherrill versus the Oneida Indian Nation of New York. Now, again, according to her, simply by virtue of being discovered by white folks, and, and to be clear, the reason we call it the doctrine of Christian discovery is because this only, this came and, and, and was afforded or empowering only the Christian nations of Europe, and I'll explain why. But, but this, was, this was her one of her arguments. So the doctrine of discovery gets its origins from a series of papal bulls. Now, papal bulls are um, these decrees that came out of the Vatican. Um, and, and the earliest one that is directly associated with the doctrine of Christian discovery is before Columbus set sail. It, it's in the, um, it had to do with Portugal going into Western Africa and essentially pillaging, uh, 
you know, Western Africa. And so the, the first papal bull, and I'm not going to list them by name. You, you can look these up and, you know, and, and again, listing them by name and their Latin names and that kind of stuff uh, aren't, isn't as relevant as talking about what was actually said in them. And in this first papal bull associated with the doctrine of Christian discovery, the Pope at the time basically said that he was authorizing and promoting that the, that the Christian nations of Europe vanquish all Saracens and enemies of Christ. And, and so you venture into these lands where there are not Christians, and you just vanquish those people. And you take, you know, he basically says to take their possessions and subject those people, or, the, or those, if you want to call them people as far as the Pope was concerned, to uh, perpetual servitude, to slavery. So the Pope, and this is, again, this is the, in the 1480s, okay? This isn't, this isn't, at, uh, this is before Christopher Columbus's sail uh, um, across the Atlantic in 1492. So this first papal bull, which is related to ones that will come after that, but the, uh, this first papal bull basically was authorizing the Christian nations of Europe to spread Christendom and to go into lands known and unknown. So it didn't necessarily have to be the discovery um, of, of new lands. They could go into lands that they knew where they were, but as long as they were pagans or Saracens, as they were called, or, and by being a, a pagan or a Saracen, you were automatically dubbed an enemy of Christ, according to the Pope, according to the Vatican, according to the Catholic Church. Now, I also want to remind people, there was no other Christian church. There was only the, the, the Catholic Church in, um, in the 1400s. There, there, was no, there was no Anglican church. There were no Protestant denominations. There was no Mormon church. There was none of these other, um, you know, breakoffs of, uh, you know, of various forms of Christianity, which even they all go back to, you know, the, the Apostles' Creed even said by other denominations said they believe in one Catholic and apostolic church. So, I mean, they, they still embrace the tenets of the Catholic Church and the, and the Pope. So this was, again, authorizing, you know, specifically Portugal to just ravage Western Africa, take slaves, take possessions, take, you know, the land, take everything that, you know, that was occupied or owned or the, the property of, um, of these pagans, these Saracens, these enemies of, of Christ. So then Columbus sails um, and uh, gets lost and gets <laughs> lands on the, uh, in the lands of the Western Hemisphere. And when word of that gets back to, to Europe and to Rome specifically, a series of, of additional papal bulls came out, which talked again about, you know, the, uh, these, these, the great Queen Isabella and, and Ferdinand, you know, going into um, um, spreading Christendom into, the, into these new lands. And, and it was all about taking land, taking control, um, perpetuating slavery, and, and all of that stuff. So that's why it isn't just the doctrine of discovery. This isn't just like, well, if somebody discovers something, they, they own it. It isn't even that. This is the idea that when the Christian nations of Europe could, could happen upon or intentionally go upon a people who were not Christians, they could consider that land vacant. In fact, that, you know, that one of the Latin expressions in, in these papal bulls was terra nullis, which means land that was void, 
meaning void of humanity because native people, indigenous people, and, and frankly, you know, indigenous people of Africa or the Western Hemisphere were not being considered human beings, not by the Catholic Church, not by the, the Pope, and not by, by Rome. And, so, and of course, the monarchies, which all, you know, essentially, you know, were, got their power through the Vatican because the church was the one that essentially ordained these, uh, these monarchs, even, you know, even as the monarchs split away from the Catholic Church, all of these monarchies of Europe, they got their power and, and essentially the big lie that somehow God had bestowed, God himself had bestowed the power of leadership among certain families in Europe, these, these nations all, all jumped at it. And, you know, and so this included, you know, obviously Portugal and, um, and Spain, uh, the, um, uh, the Dutch, the Germans, the, uh, the British, all, all of them. And, and of course, I got to remind people that I don't include Italy in that because, um, Italy wasn't a country at that time. So all those people who associate uh, Christopher Columbus as some sort of patron saint for, uh, for Italy, uh, that's not true. He was, he, he was not Italian, uh, as it were. He was genuine, uh, basically sailed more often uh, for Portugal and Spain than he certainly did for, um, for, you know, for a country that would ultimately become, uh, become Italy. Um, oh, I, I love France out of that. France was also a, a colonizing force. But so this, this doctrine of Christian discovery empowered those monarchies of Europe to essentially travel the world. It essentially began what, what people sometimes call the, the discovery era of, um, of Europe or of, of world history, right? I mean, because world history is always framed about what Europeans were doing or their descendants. So when, when people study world history or even American history, I mean, when I was a kid, they, when they taught U.S. history, they taught it in periods. And the, and the initial, the first periods of, of U.S. history was Indians, discovery, colonization, and Revolutionary War. Those are the four, first four periods of American history. But they start with us and apparently ends, our period, <laughs> uh, ends upon discovery which is somewhat validated by what, what Ruth Bader Ginsburg would say in 2005. Now, I have to say the obvious, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is Jewish. She's Jewish, and she has been perceived and promoted and perpetuated as this liberal icon of the Supreme Court. But in this situation, and several others, I might add, she was carrying water for all of those most right-wing, uh, you know, racist uh, ideologies that basically said, you know, the Christian nations of Europe could do whatever they wanted to anybody of color. Now, keep in mind, Jewish people were, were very much oppressed by some of those Christian nations of Europe, but at various times in their history. But, uh, but I'll, I'll let, let that, put that aside for now. But this, again, this liberal darling of the Supreme Court, she cited the doctrine of Christian discovery. She called it the doctrine of discovery, but we know what it is, as in footnote number one of the, a majority, and I mean an overwhelming majority uh, decision, that basically said, yes, the Oneidas, you bought some land back in your, your ancestral land uh, territory. Um, you, you bought it in what the 
in an, in an area, a claim area that the Supreme Court had previously said you have the right to, to sue for title of that land. But when they actually purchased the land and said, no, we're, we're taking this back as Oneida land, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, no, you can't do that. Because under the doctrine of Christian discovery, um, that land no longer was, um, if, it, if, if it was ever, because, I mean, again, the language that she says, it says, in the lands occupied by Indians, not owned, not in the possession, but just occupied by, by Indians, um, became vested in the sovereign. So we were never, as far as Ruth Bader Ginsburg is concerned, we never were the sovereign. And we never owned land, as far as this quote that she pulled up on the Doctrine of Christian Discovery. She says that, you know, once white people, the Christian nations of Europe, and, and they are white people, discovered these lands, they could just take them. Now, it didn't just happen in the Western Hemisphere. This is what, you know, the, the colonial Europe did to Africa, to Asia, to Australia, every place. So all of that claiming of territory by those Christian nations of Europe all came under this doctrine of Christian discovery. So for the Pope, this Pope, to suggest, oh, I don't even know what that is. I mean, that is just incredible. Now, I will say, there are those who argue, well, yes, there were five or six papal bulls that all are attributed to the doctrine of discovery, the doctrine of Christian discovery. However, there was a papal bull that came sometime after that that seemed to um, uh, contradict it. Well, it may have expressed a changing ideology, but it didn't rescind or repudiate those papal bulls that are directly attributed to the doctrine of discovery. Now, and here, herein lies the problem. He goes, now, yeah, that's, that's all fine. The church did these things, and the church always says some things, you know, things some, some things are crazy and some things are not or whatever. But, but this doctrine of discovery, I mean, it wasn't Ruth Bader Ginsburg who, who codified it into U.S. law. No, it was done back in 1823. Justice John Marshall, in a case that really didn't have native people in the, as, as plaintiffs, in a case that was about two white guys arguing over the lands that they were, were so-called leasing. So it was, again, Johnson versus McIntosh. One party claims that they had entered into a lease with the Cherokee, and the other party suggested that they had leased the land um, from the state, North Carolina. I think it was North Carolina. And... And that somehow North Carolina had, had obtained the, the rights to this land from, uh, you know, from the Cherokee. And so that was the debate. And what Justice John Marshall did was he did something that was incredible. Uh, and it solved a huge problem in the United States, which was how does the United States claim to have legal title to the land? Well, he cited the doctrine of Christian discovery. He cited this stuff clearly. Um, even in spite of the whole separation of church and state, this is 1823 now. This isn't that many years after the, the, the U.S. Constitution was, was ratified. But he, but he basically says, you know, this church doctrine um, is the law of the land. In spite of any other, uh, any, any other language, he said this, this church doctrine, doctrine is now the law of the land. He, he basically said that the the sovereignty, now at least he attributes some sovereignty to Native people. He says, the sovereignty of Indians was necessarily diminished upon discovery. 
What do you mean necessarily diminished? That's like Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying that the title of the land became vested in the sovereign. What do you mean became? How did that happen? It just To say that it just became vested doesn't even make any sense. You're just saying things without, without any uh, you know, foundation, without any background, without any proof. You're just making statements, and that's what, that's what John Marshall did. In fact, John Marshall went even farther. He actually equated discovery with conquest because that conquest was, was a, um, you know, a well-established you know, way that monarchs and monarchies could, could seize property from others. So if you can say you conquered them and, and to the victor goes the spoils, and this goes back to Roman time and, you know, all, you know, for, you know white people have been, been killing each other over possessions for, you know, for, for as, long as, as long as they could, I guess. But he equated just mere discovery with conquest. So this is what John Marshall, and this is how he codified the doctrine of discovery into U.S. law. And John said McIntosh would be cited over and over and over again. And, and it goes on to mean more than just land title issues, as, you know, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg was suggesting here. It gets into jurisdictional questions, land use, you know. Um, and, and again, it also gets into, this, into raising the question, well, what is the status of a Native person? Um, as far as personhood goes. Because a lot of this is based on the premise that, that somehow indigenous people are less than human, especially if they're not Christians. But even if we are Christians, we obtain the lowest rung of that, you know, uh, you know, of that standing, I guess. Because while in the beginning, the doctrine of discovery was all about just vanquishing pagans and Saracens and enemies of Christ, meaning killing us, at some point, there was um, there be, there became an effort, both in in enslaving native people, but maintaining native people as a part of the workforce, along with Africans, obviously, was was the idea of Christianizing us, you know, converting us into their belief system. Now that didn't mean we got we became human beings, real human beings, the kind of human beings that you know where all men are created equal. No, not, nothing like that. But this is where some of the paradox and the conflict comes in. And, and to be clear, even though Justice John Marshall makes this claim in, by codifying the Doctrine of Discovery in 1823, it was already rife with contradiction. 1794, the Candidate Treaty, the United States, they penned this document and they, and they said clearly to the Six Nations, including the Mohawk and the Cayuga and the Onondaga and the Seneca and the Mohawk um, and Tuscarora, and, but they, they made it clear. We acknowledge, we recognize that the land is yours and that the United States will never claim the same. Well, wait a second. You said that in 1794? And then 30 years later, you've got Chief Justice John Marshall basically saying, we don't own land. He actually said, we merely had the right of occupancy. See that, remember occupancy? That's what uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said. She said, the land's occupied by us, not owned, not land that we asserted sovereignty over, nothing like that. No, we, were, we didn't have that standing from as far as white people are concerned. And let's be clear, 
somewhere along the line, in spite of all the oppression, in spite of all of the, you know, the, the Holocaust and, uh, you know, and, and the bigotry and the racism expressed against Jewish people, Jewish people made it. They became white people. And so as Ruth Bader Ginsburg is citing this stuff, she's citing, again, this white supremacy, church doctrine, as a matter of law, one that she can make rulings upon, which is really ironic in, in, in a couple of different ways, because you take a document like the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, over and over again, we hear courts saying, well, that, that has no legal standing here. Wait a minute. So a papal bull has legal standing, but an international doc, you know, declaration cannot be you know, considered or, or even have any weight in the U.S. legal system? Now, now, granted, the United States, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia voted against the, um, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples back in 2007, a couple of years after Ruth Bader Ginsburg cited the Doctrine of Discovery in the Oneida case. But yeah, they, they voted against it. And there's probably a couple of good reasons why. Let me read. This is the third affirmation of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. It says, affirming further that all doctrines, policies, and practices based on or advocating superiority of peoples or individuals on the basis of national origin or racial, religious, ethnic, or cultural differences are racist, scientifically false, legally invalid, morally condemnable, and socially unjust. So <laughs> the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples basically repudiates the doctrine of Christian discovery. The U.S. hasn't done it. The Catholic Church hasn't done it. The current Pope doesn't even know what the hell it, doesn't even know what the hell it is. But the U.N. Declaration, the, the United, United Nations, the, in General Assembly, almost unanimously passes this thing with that clear repudiation of all doctrines, including the, U, uh, the, the doctrine of Christian discovery. Repu I mean, completely rejects it. Calls it. What, what, did, I, what did I say it again? Let's, let's rattle that off again. Uh, that they are. Um, racist, scientifically false, legally invalid, morally condemnable, and socially unjust. Yeah, that's, that's what you, the, the vast majority of, uh, of nations within the General Assembly, that's what they approved at, in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Of course, like I said, the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, they voted against it. Since then, they claim, all four of those nations have claimed to support and endorse the aspirations of this agreement, but not the details, and not any details that might conflict with their laws, like this one. So this third affirmation of the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, that's something the United States still won't. They'll never say that. Canada keeps hedging around it. Oh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to create our own piece of legislation that, that essentially codifies the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. No, it doesn't. You know, one of the things that... that that is the most prominent feature of the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is the notion that nation states, when doing anything that impacts us directly or indirectly, indigenous people, that free, prior, and informed consent is mandatory under, under this declaration. Now, it has no bite, it has no, uh, no force to it, but, and that is regarded by the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People as the minimum standard for survival and dignity. 
for indigenous people. So the United States and Canada, and I don't even know where Australia and New Zealand fit in on this thing, but I know those two countries still can't meet the minimum standard. And they won't address, and nor will the, the originator of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous, uh, I'm sorry, the, um, the Doctrine of Discovery, nor will they repudiate it. They, they simply will not. Now, I talked about there being contradictions. 1794, the United States was really hoping to, to maintain peace with the Six Nations as they were grabbing land. And so they wanted us to feel secure in the lands that we, that we were retaining. And so that's why they said, we recognize the borders that we've now drawn up, that that land is yours. And it will never be claimed by the United States. Never, never. <laughs> Nor will you, be, will you be interfered with, with your free use and enjoyment of your land, not land that we're holding for you, not, not land that's held um, in trust by the United States. No, this is your land. The title is yours. So they were, now they didn't give it to us. So I want to be clear. This Canandaigua Treaty is not a gift. In fact, the only giving is what was being taken, which was more land. There's, there's language in there about compensation, which frankly was never completely fulfilled. And now it's been reduced down to like, like $3,000 worth of cloth a year. The United States, there's somebody at the Bureau of Indian Affairs whose job it is to requisition bolts of cloth that get sent to the Six Nations. And, you know, I got to tell you, some Native people, they treat it like the Shroud of Turin, like this is special holy cloth. No, it isn't. It's just crap that somebody at the Bureau of Indian Affairs buys off the, you know, open market and they send it up here and, and some of my people treat it like it's gold or something like that. And... And it never gets distributed because if you distribute it amongst what's, what's probably, I don't know, uh, 100,000 um, Haudenosaunee, it would, um, you, we'd, we'd probably get a square, maybe, you know, two or three inch square or something of that stuff. I don't know what the hell you're going to do that. So some people, you know, wheel and deal or some people never even get a chance to, to, to possess any of it if they wanted it. So some people will make a ribbon dress or a pillow or something. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, so... That treaty, 1794, is completely contradicted in 1823 by Justice John Marshall. And, and it's not like it ends there. Because, look, part of what, what happens with Marshall and, and, uh, and that, that court that he presided over, that's when the removal doctrine starts to come in, right? The, the Removal Act, where, when Native people are being pushed. By, eight, by the 1830s, the Seneca Nation and, and the, the Six Nations were being pressed to move too. And in fact, by then, many Native people, had, many of uh, Six Nations people had moved. But the Senecas were being promised land in Kansas. And when the Senecas asked that question, they said, well, what about this land? You know, what would be the status of that land? And the United States came back, and, and this is all documented. This is, that land would be yours. And it would never be made into a state. It would be held in the same title that you hold, you possess your land right now. So, again, in spite of 10 years prior, this doctrine of, you know, Christian discovery that, uh, that John Marshall codifies in law, the United States was contradicting not only the acknowledgement of the land that the Senecas were holding 
um, at that time, but the lands that they were promised in Kansas. Now, it turns out the Senecas didn't go. I mean, some did. I mean, the, the, there, there were some Cayuga Senecas. In fact, there's a group of people that call themselves the Cayuga Senecas who did go to Kansas. But by and large, um, the, many, or if not most, um, well, I don't know if I'm most, but, but, but the Senecas primarily stayed home, you know, as did most of the uh, Six Nations. But, but again, eight, so we're already past the time that Marshall had made this ruling, but there's already continuing contradictions that play out over and over and over again. And of course, there, was, you know, there, were, there were many treaties and agreements that were entered into, some you know, ratified, some not ratified. So we get to um, you know, the, the, the Civil War, right? And the Civil War, you have all of this conflict happening over slavery. And you know, people say that it had other things to, uh, had to do with states' rights and stuff like that. Yeah, states' rights to to have slavery. Um, out of that, come you know, the, the Union prevails, and they passed the Fourteenth Amendment. And the Fourteenth Amendment was to clarify the status of not just um, the formerly enslaved, but Frankly, anybody you would think who was, you know, questionable about their citizenship. And it says, all persons born or naturalized in the U.S. and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and the state uh, wherein they reside. But that didn't apply to us. So that, that you know, we're, now we're into the 1860s. They, they amend the Constitution to make sure that black people, the formerly enslaved black people, are recognized by the Constitution as citizens, but we weren't, and we weren't asking to be. You know, we weren't asking to be recognized as U.S. citizens. But there, and so he said, well, yeah, why wouldn't it include you? Well, it said, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof. Well, we weren't subject to the U.S. jurisdiction. And it says, citizens of the United States and the state wherein they reside. We didn't live in a state. Our territories were not part of New York State or any state. Our territories were not part of the United States. Remember, the, land, the United States will never claim the same. We'll never claim your land. Well, so our lands weren't part of the United States. Now, so the, and were, were we born within the United States? Well, no, we were, uh, many of us were born on our, on our own lands, at, at, you know, certainly at that time. So, night, and, so we weren't considered citizens in, in the 1860s. 1924, the United States passes the Indian Citizenship Act. And again, every one of these things that may or may not have been uh, drafted or constructed to include us because they felt they had the right to do it under the Doctrine of Discovery, Doctrine of Christian Discovery, including the, the, um, the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924. There they say all Indians born within the continental United States are hereby declared to be U.S. citizens. Wait a minute. What do you mean declared? You can't just make us U.S. citizens. I mean, that's 1924. Ten years before that, the rest of the world was already calling that very act a war crime. They, they called it, they didn't have the word genocide yet. They called that denationalization. That you strip away somebody's national character and you, you impose your own upon them. Well, that's what they did in 1924. There's also, a, you know, a part of it that says that none of our um, uh, property, and they said tribal property, whatever the hell that's supposed to mean, 
um, were, was to be affected by this. But the fact of the matter is that, um, that piece of legislation passed by overwhelmingly by the, by the House and the Senate, and it was actually, it's called the Indian Citizen Act, but it was also called the Snyder Bill. Snyder was a US, it was a US congressman from New York. So they proposed this legislation to solve, again, solve their problems. Some of their problems you know, were related to things like who had jurisdiction over us? Because that still wasn't clear. Well, and do you have jurisdiction over our property, over our possessions? Well, but you have a caveat. You have a disclaimer you know, at the end of that, that piece of legislation that says that our property is not affected by it. Well, what about our income? So, I mean, it's, it's really problematic and, and contradictory, once again. So that's 1924. Ten years later, the United States tries it again. They pass the Indian Reorganization Act. Why? Because they have the authority to do so under the doctrine of Christian discovery. There, they redefine what a native person is as a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States. Now, that implies that we are under the jurisdiction of the United States, but it still isn't really addressing the citizenship issue other than to say clearly they weren't, that the Citizenship Act didn't um, finalize that determination, I guess, because in 1934, they had to pass this law that, that tries to redefine who we are as individuals. But even that doesn't do it because today, even today as native people are trying to reclaim lost lands. And the, the most common way that an, uh, a native peoples reclaims last, lost land is to, is to try to get land put into trust. So they have, and they call it the fee to trust um, process. And fee is how land is titled. The Senecas, for instance, they own their land. Their, own, their land that is owned, in, is absolute title to the Senecas. But in the United States, you are giving a fee title, which means you own it subject to you know, the jurisdiction of the state that the land's in, in and that kind of thing. But so this, the, you can do this fee to trust application, which is to take land that is deeded under you know, a, a given state, and then you go through a process and you have that land placed in trust to the United States for your use and enjoyment. You still don't own the land, but it's considered Indian country. And of course, they've done this with a bunch of native lands. Some, some lands, they just you know, redefined it as trust land. And of course, in any lands that we've tried to reclaim, they've almost always said, well, you got to use this fee to trust process. Well, here's the catch. If you're a, uh, a native people, there's, there's what they call the, the, the 1934 test. <laughs> if you were not clearly and, and, and through documentation under the jurisdiction of the United States in 1934, you can't get your land. You, you can't get land. You can't have put land into trust for your use and enjoyment. So what does that mean? Well, it clearly means that there were, there were Native people who were not under the jurisdiction of the United States in 1934. Otherwise, you wouldn't have this, you know, you know this standard, right? And, and this one's really problematic. And, and many nations have, have been uh, 
challenged by the Interior Department and the U.S. Justice Department say, well, yeah, we, we can't prove that you were under jurisdiction of the United States in 1934. In spite of the Citizenship Act, in, sp in spite of the 14th Amendment, in spite of the, the IRA, the Indian Reorganization Act, making these claims, they clearly know that many of us, and, and I would still maintain there are you know, thousands and thousands of Native people who still don't consider themselves U.S. citizens or subject to the United States. In spite of the, the legislation that they continue to pass, and again, all of this, these, these pieces of law, the pieces of legislation, and the rulings by courts over things like jurisdiction, they always use Johnson D. McIntosh, and on rare exceptions, or, or, or rare occasions, like with Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the Oneida case, she went right directly to the doctrine of discovery. She, I mean, she didn't even, you know, reference the Johnson v. McIntosh being the vehicle by which the doctrine of discovery became codified into U.S. law. No, she went straight to it. So, I mean, when we raise the issue today with this pope and, you know, and, and wherever, it's because it's still in place. And it doesn't matter if, I mean, there was also another um, papal bull or, or, or encyclical or something, you know, that was done. I, I think it was by this pope where he, you know, gave this big overture to, about indigenous peoples that he was referring to coming out of South America. And many people regarded that as, you know, some, you know, landmark, you know, papal decree about indigenous rights and, you know, and the, and the like but it still never repudiated the doctrine of discovery. And, and by repudiation, here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Pope making a public statement that says the Catholic Church does not endorse this concept of the doctrine of discovery, nor the spoils of that, uh, of, of that doctrine. And they call upon all nations, and of course they mean the nations of Europe and those and the offsprings of the nations, Canada, the United States, and they call upon all nations to also repudiate this notion that the that the Christian nations of Europe could simply enslave and take the lives and possessions of indigenous people. The Catholic Church has never done it. No pope has done it. Most of the popes have been really, really careful. And I, you know, look, I I dealt with you know what the Pope's apology really was when he did a six-day tour of Canada. So I won't revisit that. But he didn't apologize for the role of the church. In even as he used the word genocide when he was reminded it, and that was another um mistake, I guess you could say, by the infallible um Pope. He said he the, the word genocide never came to mind until somebody brought it up. So he he obviously didn't understand what genocide was and couldn't equate the residential schools with genocide and certainly seems to be oblivious to the role the Catholic Church played in colonization, in the genocide that was committed not just in those residential schools, but for 500 years. Yeah, he didn't apologize for any of that. And... We, we, we have sent, and I say we, there have been delegations of Native people who have gone to Rome over and over and over again. They've met with the Holy See. 
They've met with the lawyers from the Vatican. Stephen Newcomb has dedicated the, the, the majority of his life pursuing repudiation by the church of this. He's had, he's had face-to-face meetings um, with, with representatives of the Vatican. I don't know if he spoke with the Pope directly. But this, this never gets addressed. And the reality is we're still living with this. So when I bring up the Doctrine of Discovery or the Doctrine of Christian Discovery, and there is a film called The Doctrine of uh, Discovery. It's by Stephen Newcomb and um, uh, Sheldon Wolftrial. I encourage you to take, check it out. I used to do a couple of uh, screenings of this. In fact, we screened it before it was in, even released. Uh, Stephen Newcomb and Sheldon Wolfchild uh, joined me in New York when we screened the film. And it's called The Doctrine of Discovery, Unmasking the, the Domination Code or Code of Domination. And it, it really lays it out pretty clearly what, what it was and how it was used. And, and again, to be clear, I, I want to reiterate that this wasn't just a doctrine that was used to commit genocide against Native people. The entire slave trade, European slave trade, from North and South America and Africa, was authorized and encouraged by the Pope, by the Vatican, by the Catholic Church. And it gave permission for this. And, and again, if that seems strange or unlikely, again, let me remind people that the monarchs themselves are ordained by the Catholic Church or were ordained by the Catholic Church. So their very power comes from marching orders that came from the Pope. So it isn't unreasonable to think that the, that, that the Popes, and I mean a series of Popes, not just one, and we're talking about you know, almost a century of these bulls that came out of the, out of the, out of the, the papacy that reaffirmed this desire of the Catholic Church to have the Christian nations spread Christendom throughout the globe. And they did it. And they killed millions and millions of people in the name of their God. Millions and millions of people died, either intentionally or through starvation, enslavement, any number of things. The racism that we experience today, and I say we, I mean all people of color, experience today is directly because of the doctrine of discovery. Racism gets its origins. Look, Europe was already you know, oppressing its own people. But once Europeans ventured out of Europe and started seeing people that were different from them, who looked different because of the color of our skin, our height, our build, our belief systems, that's when racism was born. I mean, Europe had, had centuries of oppressing their own people, you know, creating, you know, the, the class system and, you know, and, and oppressing poor people. The monarchies enriching themselves on the backs of people. Yeah, they did it for years. But once they figured out, hey, we could do this to people of color. We could do it to black people. We could do it to native people. And we can actually make the lives of our white poor people a little bit better by oppressing the, the people of color. Well, We'll put black people in the cotton fields. We'll put native people, uh, enslave them. And again, I often at times have to remind people, the first transatlantic, transatlantic ship 
transporting slaves or enslaved people went from the Caribbean back to Europe. Christopher Columbus. Christopher Columbus sailed the first ship across the Atlantic with, uh, with individuals in chains to be enslaved in Europe. That's, it wasn't, the first transatlantic slave ship wasn't from, um, wasn't from Africa. I mean, there were slaves that were being brought to Portugal, but that wasn't a transatlantic slave ship. So uh, that's what I'm trying to say. But the, the first ships to go across the Atlantic with individuals chained to be enslaved was by Christopher Columbus bringing, oftentimes, the most, among the most valuable were young girls, nine or 10, sex slaves, back to Europe. And that, you know what? That's all authorized by the church. Now, the church doesn't say, oh, yes, you have the permission to rape, but it says vanquish. And we all know what vanquish has come to mean, and it came to mean in the very beginning. So however you deem it necessary to vanquish a people, and their women in particular, you had the blessing of the church to do that. With no, look, with no contrition from the church, no regret from the church even expressed. I mean, maybe a little regret. I mean, like I said, they, they did issue a few, a few papal bulls that, that, try, that tried to end an era of complete exploitation of indigenous peoples, but it never rescinded it. It never rescinded the series of papal bulls. It never, they never correct their mistakes. Why? Because they claim they never make mistakes. The Pope is infallible, incapable of making mistakes. So as they adjust what they consider their, their theological ideology, they don't ever address the, the, the wrongs that they committed. So, and that's why when this Pope came to, came to Canada, he didn't apologize for the church. He, he asked for forgiveness for the role Christians played in the, in the residential schools. He didn't say he was asking forgiveness for the role the church played or the, that the role that popes have played or the role that he has played. No. You know, and, and even as the genocide of our people under the doctrine of Christian discovery would continue and would move from pure slaughter, and it never really, the slaughter only ended in, you know, at the turn of the, you know, the end of the 19th century. But, but during that, that period of time, including with the residential schools, this idea of converting us was never to make us full-fledged members of their society. No, no. And in fact, once, and this goes back to one of the guys that um, the current Pope, Pope Francis, made a saint, this Junipero Serra. Who, who basically ran a series of missions, a whole bunch of them, um, from San Francisco down to San Diego, um, what is known as San Francisco and San Diego, on the Catholic, uh, in California. He didn't care about the lives of the children. He only cared about their souls. Yeah, their souls. Because once those children were baptized, it didn't matter if they died. He delivered their souls to, to his Jesus. And... The same would go with, with the deaths at these, at these residential schools. That is the weight and the power that the doctrine of Christian discovery has had 
globally, but in the United States and Canada. And it is it, the weight of that doctrine is still plaguing Native people today. Even with the, with, with the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples repudiating it, this doctrine of discovery, all doctrines, practices, and policies, even, even with the whole world saying that those, that those are illegal, those practices, those policies, those doctrines, they're racist, they're scientifically false, legally invalid. I mean, I realize that this was said in, in 2007, this, but are we going to say what Ruth Bader Ginsburg did in 2005 that is legally invalid? I, we say it is, but they keep passing laws. They keep passing lo racist laws that take from us and give power to the states. We, we see with some of the Supreme Court rulings right now. Even one of the, their right-wing uh, judges, Gorsuch, went off on the Supreme Court. What do you mean Native people are subject to state jurisdiction in, in Oklahoma? Yeah, this is the, they continue to take from Native people. They take our possessions, they take our freedoms, they take our, our land use rights. And, and when I say take the president, look, I've said it before, Kathy Hochul, she, she extorted half a billion dollars out of the Seneca Nation. In, in one shot, in one shot, she froze all their accounts and forced them to pay $560 million to, to her so she could hand it to a billionaire to build a, a football stadium. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. But if you wonder, you know, look, how do these, you know, because I always hear people say, yeah, but she had the law behind her. Yeah, it's because your laws are based on this church doctrine from the 15th century. This, these ancient decrees set out by the Catholic Church still are providing cover for the governor of New York the President of the United States, the Interior Department, all of it. Because there is this overarching, in spite of the contradictions, because the contradictions never, I mean, look, when you fight a legal case, you present your evidence and, and your opposition presents their evidence. Now, that evidence might be good on both sides, but a judge is going to say, well, we think this evidence supersedes that evidence. It doesn't make that evidence go away. I mean, we could bring up the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, but they're going to say, yeah, there's that. But, you know, we've got 200 years of, uh, of asserting jurisdiction over a people because we codified the doctrine of discovery into our law. Your sovereignty was necessarily diminished. Your, lands, your land title became vested in the sovereigns. You guys aren't the sovereigns. Ruth Bader Ginsburg said it. Just as John Marshall said it. So... This continues to plague us. And there's not, we're not anywhere close to getting the United States to rescind or repudiate their use of the doctrine of discovery. No, not at all. Hell, they, they won't even fully endorse the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, quite possibly because of that language and the free prior and informed consent rule. No, the United States won't do that, nor will Canada. They just, they just keep trying to force us into their box.
this notion that we are somehow like a municipality. I mean, oh, you're just a native municipality within our system. No, that's not what we are. So I haven't done a whole show in a long time on the Doctrine of Discovery. So that's what I intended to do this week. And I, I had somebody very specific ask me about this. So I wanted to go through it. But you can look it up. I mean, certainly I, I encourage you to check out the film, The Doctrine of Discovery, uh, Unmasking the Domination Code by uh, Stephen Newcomb and uh, Sheldon Wolfchild. Um, I encourage you to, to check out the film or read Stephen Newcomb's book that the movie was based on, Pagans in the Promised Land. But there's a lot of language out there. There's a lot of research, if you want to look for it, already done, listing all of the papal bulls, listing the language, and showing how it's been used over and over and over again. This is, this is what we deal with on a daily basis. In everything from jurisdictional disputes, policing, our right to, to try to carry ourselves with our own industries. And, this, and when we fight the state, they have, uh, you know, a whole, they have drawers of, of legal precedents, all wrong, all based on, on something that's illegal, unjust, and racist. But when, when Native people try to cite a policy or a practice used against us as racist, we even get black people undermining us. Crystal People Stokes. Others saying, well, you, you guys can't use racism, that's ours. Well, we've, had, we've had Jewish scholars suggest, you guys can't call what your experience was a Holocaust, that's ours. You can't use that. I've had people argue that we can't use the word genocide. Because nobody wants to understand what racism is, what the definition is, and how it involves in systemically embedding racism in all of the institutions. They don't want to understand what genocide is. They don't want to understand what denationalization is. They want to assume that when, in 1924, we wanted to become U.S. citizens. Well, some may have wanted to. They could have granted that. But, but when they make a declaration that says, oh, you're, you're, you're all U.S. citizens now. Yeah, but we didn't ask for that. And in fact, we protested it. The Six Nations said, no, you, can't, you just can't declare that. And, and it was cited over and over again that, that, that we didn't accept being forced. And, and, I, and anytime I hear a Native person say, well, we didn't become U.S. citizens until 1924. No, that's not even true. In 1924, they tried to force, impose citizenship upon us. The question is, did you allow it? I, for one, don't. I reject the notion. I'm not a U.S. citizen. I'm, I'm Mohawk. I'm Gunjagahaga. I live on the territory of the Seneca Nation, the Onundawaga. Now, I'm not condemning somebody for being an American or a U.S. citizen, even a native person who makes that decision. I'm not condemning you if you do that. But let's be clear, there is a distinction. There is a distinction between a native person who lives a native life and their native culture. And look, we are being inundated with any number of tools to indoctrinate and assimilate us, both in the schools and legal system, any number of ways. But many of us still resist. And that's why I call the show <laughs> Resistance Radio. Look, I want to thank you for listening. 
I want to thank you for, uh, for, for hearing me out. And I hope that you will take some of my words and do your own research and learn more about the doctrine of discovery. I'm John Kane for Resistance Radio. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Yahweh.